Hello, everyone, and welcome to Wild Hearts, the podcast dedicated to sharing the stories from the founders and operators changing the world. In today's episode, we have the co-founder of Partly, Levi Fawcett. Launching that rocket for the first time, it was, I think, and still is the most wild experience of my life. And we did it with a team of 100 and something people from New Zealand that certainly raises the bar in terms of understanding what's possible and realizing we can absolutely compete with the Silicon Valleys of the world. Levi is the eldest of nine children, an outsider who built and lived in a shipping container at 13. He's one of the few people in the world to build and launch a rocket into space, a rocket lab. And he'll share the step-by-step guide to building a marketplace that could be the first trillion dollar business from New Zealand. And with that, enjoy today's episode. Well, let's kick it off. I was doing some digging into your background and learned that you are the eldest of nine children. What was that chaos like? <laughs> oh, you've done your research. <laughs> yeah, what it's worth, I'm on a six. Oh, okay. Yeah, so, but I, I felt like there must be an inflection point after that. I don't think there's an inflection point after six. I think the inflection point happens about three or four when you start, start looking at your siblings. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I felt like the fifth yeah. and sixth, it was just like, now we are one. <laughs> exactly exactly fifth sixth seventh eighth it could go on i probably wouldn't notice <laughs> so being a father now how would you say that being the eldest of nine kids helped prepare you for fatherhood yeah it's helped in a lot of different ways i mean the most obvious is it makes you think about things in a very different way right it's unusual having mm-hmm. that number of siblings or growing up in a family that large it forces you to operate across a huge range of different people personalities and ages I have seen a lot of kids grow up and so for me having a a daughter now it's not as surprising so there's certain phases they go through i go oh you know this this is expected i've seen this before (laughs) Uh, that's my partner who's saying oh you know is she is this normal should should she be doing this yeah you know she's she's okay she's hurt herself you know it's fine don't worry (laughs) so i think that helps a lot when it comes to my own daughter just having, having seen it before. And then I think the other thing is kind of understanding how wide-ranging personalities can be, even from the same parents and the same family and the same upbringing, massive range of personalities. And so I guess I'm probably not as likely to impose my uh, my strict engineering beliefs. Uh, you must be an engineer. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, did that, the, the size of the family, I'm sure location also played a role, but how did you find yourself being homeschooled? Yeah, pros, pros and cons. I think the pros outweighed the cons, actually. Pros were we did a lot of project-based work in that the way that we learned was building things. So I spent most of my childhood years from maybe four or five onwards, you know, making things in the workshop. I built 10 or so go-karts. I made like a water-powered, hydrogen-powered go-kart. I made a super-fast go-kart. I made a go-kart that, you know, had fire coming out the back. Like there were all of these kind of really cool, interesting things that we were able to do. And it just let you... Start a project, understand all of the implications, understand all the moving pieces, and then actually complete something, which was a really, I find is the most valuable way of learning. I think I think it's actually a big gap in a lot of people's education is they, do, they don't have the ability to see something through end to end, understand, I guess, what it means to be super curious, and, and it also kind of gives you all of the skills to operate end to end. So that was probably one of the most valuable things I got. The other pro, I think, being homeschooled was you get to be a, a bit more of a specialist. I, to this day, I still can't write super well. 
because of something I just, I just, I, I never did. There were aspects, you know, education that you normally do at school that I never did. It hasn't bothered me to this day, but I was able to go really deep on things that I care a lot about, which were maths, physics. I did a lot of kind of programming when I was really young. I fixed a lot of things, you know, it was those types of things that was immensely valuable, I think, being homeschooled. Kind of middle ground, I mean, somewhere between pro and con, I think was the, the fact that you end up just different. It can be a pro, it can be a con, depending on how you look at it. For me, it's mostly turned out to be a benefit because you you frame things in different ways and it, it can be quite helpful. Moving on to the downsides, I think it's harder to kind of build connections with the same kind of peer group. Again, that became manageable. You know, went to, obviously I went to school for a while, went to uni, got over all that. But, you know, prior to that, you're that weird kid, right? Like mm. <laughs> you're the antisocial homeschooler that doesn't know what social norms are. So that's, that's definitely a downside from for homeschoolers is they just, you don't know what you're missing out on. When did you make the transition outside of being homeschooled? So for me, I was 16. I did one year of high school. Age. So yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, had a very, I had a very interesting upbringing. Actually, my, my family were quite religious, as you can probably imagine, on a family that size. Quite common, but more common. I wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> and so that caused a lot, of, a lot of strife. So I moved out and lived in a shipping container when I was 13, 14. What? Um, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. There you go. There's a little tidbit of... A shipping uh, container. Early life. Describe yeah. how you pimped out the shipping container. What am I imagining here? <laughs> By the time I was sort of 13, I'd made a bit of money off some of the previous like things that I had, fixing electronics. I'd buy like broken iPods, laptops, etc. Take all the good parts out, stick them together, and sell them again. And um, so I made yeah. that sort of 10, 10 grand off that quite young. So I bought the shipping container. I cut holes in it with a big disc grinder. Bought some windows and doors. Put them in. I insulated it on the inside, kitted it all out, <laughs> wired it up. So you put sort of 240 volt wiring and then ran some internet and in, or microwave internet that I bought. Wow. And and so, yeah, that kind of became my my little house. And um, it helped enormously. It helped remove a lot of the, the, the family strife because I lived out in a paddock yeah. further away from everyone. I was able to kind of do, do my own thing a bit more. So, yeah, interesting. And, oh, fascinating. Now, how did you then, so then did you teach yourself from the ages like between the age of 13 and 16 like yeah, what's your life like much. at this point yeah <laughs> um i spent a lot of time programming like writing writing code and um, that was the thing that i was really interested in i loved oh my gosh yeah i would sleep until maybe midday terrible and get up i would write code for maybe 15 or 16 hours and then i would sleep um kind of just doing that on repeat for for a long time did end up with a bit of a social life, so I would go out and do things. But yeah, that was my life for, for quite a long time. And I still continued to make money. So I had these various little side hustles that I was able to kind of save money. I did some work. I probably did about two hours of, say, physics and maths each day, which was just enough to send the basics. But, but by the time I got to high school, uh, year 13 high school, I hadn't done, I hadn't memorized my time tables. I didn't, hadn't done any algebra or anything. I was, I was really quite, I was quite far behind. But, but I guess prior to that, you know, 10 down, I had en- just enough fundamentals to know how to survive. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I mean, Samantha Wong, partner of Blackbird and a board member, uh, she made a comment which now makes so much more sense. She said, a born entrepreneur and 
in my notes, I was like, well, let's test this hypothesis, but I feel like we just totally tested it. And I guess the next question is, have you always identified yourself as a builder? Um, no, no. I, in fact, I did it for very different reasons back then, actually. It was really more about kind of uh, survival. <laughs> well, that sounds overly harsh. Back then, I didn't think I was going to be very employable. I was like, no one's going to want to hire me, so I'm going to have to figure out how to make my own money, survive on my own, so to speak, which sounds a bit fatalistic. It wasn't, it wasn't that bad, but that, that was kind of the, the thinking. And so I just thought, well, these are just the things that I have to do. I'll figure out how to, to make money. And that mindset carried right the way through to, to university. It's why I've always had a company running in parallel alongside high school, alongside university. It was, you know, I saw education as a way to grow. It was interesting. It was kind of fun. And it was a place to learn. I never really cared about grades or anything. You know, sometimes I wouldn't even bother sitting the tests if I didn't think it was worth doing. But mm -hmm. absorbing the information was was valuable because I saw it as this parallel stream to help, help grow everything else in parallel. So that was actually why I thought I didn't, it wasn't like a builder thing or anything. It was just kind of a way of making sure that I controlled my own destiny. That then kind of grew into, into realizing that a lot of those skills, kind of that background made me really, really well suited for building things from the ground up or solving problems that are kind of counterintuitive and maybe this this kind of lines up to the whole reasoning from first principles thing that was just because that was the the only real real way of doing it and you have to reason from first principles if if there's no no one to benchmark to reason by analogy with right yeah, <laughs> yeah. but i think that's probably the the way I, I really thought about it and so what's standing out to me is this outside in perspective and then reasoning from there, what was the moment where you sort of became employable, you realized that, and did you ever see that you were sort of drifting to the mean, like you sort of lost this edge of, like it sounds like there was a moment where you realized that perspective was actually a huge competitive advantage, and I'd love for you to just go deeper there. Yeah, so I actually started to realize at a high school where I kind of came in with not knowing any algebra, maths and then over that one year i kind of was able to learn it all learn calculus and then i came out sort of top of the school and that wasn't because i was smarter than everyone else it was just because i worked way harder mm. I, you know i worked into the night and the evenings i worked weekends that just became the focus and so that i didn't call it grit at the time but just willingness to work super hard and to just maniacally focus you know, i realized at that point well there's definitely something here and then through uni thing that became more clear Tipping point was a, a job I had at, at IndyCars. So this was a, a job I had over my summer break, washing mm. cars, right? Mm. And again, but just because I was nowhere near it, ambitious enough, and I thought, well, if I'm going to work for someone, this is probably the right job for me. <laughs> Went off and washed cars for three months. Um, definitely not the most enjoyable job, but also just understanding the caliber, understanding the types of problems that were solving and what that day-to-day -day looked like, I kind of realized, yeah, I, you know, I can definitely do much, much better than this. Mm. But so yeah, I, I think that was the turning point. That was the point I realized there's no way I'm doing this for the next long time. And the gap here is quite large and I can do something much more impactful. Mm. And painting a picture, I know you worked at Rocket Lab. Uh, I wanted to sort of get an insider scoop to what was it like probably being one of the few people in the world that have been a part of building and launching a rocket into space. Uh, and what was it like seeing that moment for the first time? Oh, that's a that's a great question because that was probably. probably I can see you smiling as well, like. <laughs> <laughs> it was, I think, and still is, 
the most wild experience of my life. Mm. Launching that rocket for the first time, it was, well, a, a little bit of history there. We'd spent about three years prepping for this launch. Now, not longer than that, obviously, than, than three years, but it was that three-year period where things had really started to ramp up. Every month, Pete Beck, the CEO, Pete would say, we're going to launch next month. Well, we're going to launch in three months, but this is for three years. <laughs> Every team felt so much pressure to, to kind of put this rocket together and no one wanted to to dodge, right? Like it, it was kind of this giant game of chicken where no team wanted to be the the bottleneck. No team wanted to slow them down. This amazing natural team optimization function. Right? You didn't need any management structure. There were no one-on-ones. There was like, there was just nothing because everything was so clear. Rocket is launching. Don't be the team to hold the rocket up, right? Mm. Now, on top of that, there were a lot of us, myself included, who would you know sleep in cars. So I sit in the front seat of my Toyota Corolla. I put the seat back, sleep for six or seven hours, get up, research a bunch of kind of papers, read some of like the NASA papers on their simulation side, building the simulator. That's your framing for the first launch. On top of that, I think we'd been up for two or three days prior, like almost no sleep putting together these these last pieces, testing things, running simulations. My job at the time was the hardware simulator. So I, I owned, I built and ran the hardware simulator. And so I was responsible for approving the vehicle before it launched. So we had, you know, Pete would bring in these, it had, I think he had like prime minister that came in and sat in mission control. He had all these operators. Pete would say it costs us a million dollars a day not to launch. And for nearly two weeks, we had all these issues, and I was I was always ending up saying, "Simulation is doing something weird. We can't launch." Um, and then we would get through halfway through a launch, and then something weird would happen on the actual vehicle, you know, a rocket, and it'd go, "Wait, simulation doesn't match reality." Mm. And we'd we'd hold and we'd work through the night and make some code changes and test it all and push it out, and then the next morning, get everyone back in and try and launch again off the new simulation. And so I was just it was just this crazy time. And then the moment it launched, we had. You know, the whole mission control there and PPEP was in mission control and, and he said, you know, remember, no matter what happens, stay completely calm, right? If it goes well, stay composed. There's a lot of people here. There's government officials, you know, watching, watching oh, behind. God. And so, you know, we're, we're, all, we're all sitting there and then go through this two-minute auto sequence, batteries are armed, all these events are happening, engines prepped, auto sequence locked. And then the rocket, like it launches and it goes straight up. It doesn't just blow up. It doesn't, <laughs> you know, it, which is just amazing because it was the first time it launches, but no one stayed calm. So the first person to jump up was Pete. So he just jumps out of his seat and he's like, you fucking beauty. We're, we're all there. Just, you know, it was, it was a crazy, crazy moment. That first launch. I think everyone was, yeah. <laughs> At what point, like how long, how long was it in the air? until he screamed out with that natural response <laughs> it was i think i think the moment it got off the ground he was already like hopping like a <laughs> now, i think there was stage set so when stage one and stage two separated successfully and then stage two engine started mm. that was the point where that that was already more successful than almost all first launches are mm. uh, reaching uh reaching stage separation where your stage two engine lights and continue to control that was was mind-blowing so one of the lessons that i took away from there is just the beauty of having a really clear goal and how quickly people can move when 
you do have physical products and maybe we'll touch on it how you've sort of reapplied that in part least context but for now do any lessons come to mind on your experience at rocket lab you're absolutely right that was my number one biggest takeaway as well you can survive on almost no kind of management structure you can survive just having a bunch of smart people Mm. if you've got a really 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 clear goal and it doesn't get much clearer than that that's kind of perfect it wasn't obviously this wasn't intentional it was just the nature of building a rocket I think the other takeaway from Rocket Lab was the value in having these really, really smart people combined with, well, they're, they're all smart. These ambitious people who are young and inexperienced combined with a small group of people who really, really know what they're doing. That was the other standout at Rocket Lab. There was a handful of people who built spacecraft before 20 years engineering, incredibly senior, amazing people. Then there were people like myself, right out of uni, you know, first job out of out of university, but willing to work super hard, really curious, and just lived and breathed it, right? You wake up, you, see, you solve problems, you think deeply about what you're trying to do, you reason it through from different principles, and then you just ask these senior people a ton of questions, hundreds of questions a day I would ask. Dr. Lamori was one of the, the software engineers, uh, I think he's one of the managers, brilliant engineer one of the best engineers I've ever met. And I, every day, I, he, would, he would get really annoyed but I'd ask him so many questions. <laughs> uh, he was very patient most of the time, but I just asked so many that he'd just go, like, I'm busy, I've got things to do. <laughs> and what, what gave you, what did he do that gave you the permission to keep asking those questions? Or is that just a part of your nature? Um, I, I, because I was running the Hider in the Loop, this simulator, he got a lot of value out of that as well. And so I was usually solving problems for him. Mm. But also, yeah, it was it was something that I I was very intentional about. Again, this is this is part of the benefits, I guess, not not being too worried about what people think. And so, like, I kind of knew it was a little bit anno- annoying, but who cares to some extent? And there were times where you know you're you're well, is it going to make me look? D- am I going to ask a dumb question? That happens for the first week, and then from that point on, you're asking smart and sensible questions. You know, a year in, you seem to look brilliant as well because you've asked so many questions from these people that really, really know what they're doing. And so these juniors come along and you, you know, you've, you've grown so much in a, in a year. So it's kind of intentional. And I guess it's just something I always do. Can you give a brief history of the business you were running in parallel or goods and how that led to the insight that I guess partly was founded on? Yeah. So all goods was designed to make it really easy for small to medium businesses to get online. So, we built these tools to help small to medium businesses structure and standardize their data, bring it all into one place, and then we'd push it off to wherever buyers were online. Kind of a hybrid channel manager and one API to rule them all, which these are concepts that exist today. So I started that business, I guess once Rocket Lab got to the point, it was, there, there weren't as many hard problems. We'd got to 10 launches, well, I mean, it wasn't quite 10 at the time, some, some number of launches, um, we moved into slightly more production phase. The problems weren't as hard as they used to be. And so I kind of, well, that was the right time to start the business. And uh, and all goods happened to be that. Now, I mostly funded the business off the back of my previous companies, off the back of Rocket Lab salary. So we're able to hire one engineer and then the other co-founders just work for free and take salaries. I didn't take a salary. I would do three days a week at Rocket Lab, Monday through Wednesday, team back in Christchurch, worked offset days, 
So then I do four days with the team in Christchurch. And so when I had good overlap or enough overlap with both teams and was able to just do that. And so, so every week I just fly around quite Auckland three days, Christchurch four, three, four, three, four. And um, that was good, but that, that became a bit much. I, I think it's very manageable working a lot if you're just focused on one thing. Context switching that much, scaling a team at Rocket Lab in this like very intense high pressure production environment through trying to grow a startup, finding product market fit. Those two things were just so far apart on the, on that spectrum of problems that became a real big mental barrier. So yeah, that was all good. Making it really easy for small business to get online, ran that, that four days a week. And we got that to just, well, what I call moderately successful. We had 400,000 monthly users, we had 1,000 business customers, but it wasn't going to be this wildly successful global category-defining company. Um, and it wasn't something that we could see ourselves spending the next 10 years on. There's a gap in my logic here, which is you had this outsider's in perspective wondering whether you could be employable, and then you just sort of checked the validity of all goods with this global, wild ambition. Did Rocket Lab play a role in upping how much of an impact you could make or was there something else to it? Looking back, Rocket Lab was just one part of it. It was clear at that point that there were a lot of interesting things I could go off and do, but Rocket Lab was incredible in that Pete is ridiculously ambitious, unreasonably ambitious, which is brilliant. One of the most positive things about him. And the insider's view at Rocket Lab, seeing how the small team, relatively small team when I started, was able to grow off the back of immense chaos, right? Behind the scenes in every startup, Rocket Lab included, it's incredible how many things are just kind of landing haphazardly. There's always 10 fires to fight every second week, leaving the, thinking, how are we going to pull through this, right? Like we've just blown up some rocket. Uh, you know, we've just destroyed the most important thing that we have and we're about to run out of money as a company. And, and Pete says, this is, the, this is kind of the last day. And then always kind of finding a way around it. I think just understanding that mm. that was the point where you know you could see how a startup actually works mm. now just these series of extremely chaotic events where you're operating well ahead of where you actually are a little bit of reality distortion on the other side of things right where it's we're building rockets and we're very careful and we're going to launch them on the day we say we are but behind the scenes and that is everything's fucked and then i think standing that mission you know that we discussed earlier how much a team can do and it is possible from New Zealand right we were the second private company in the world put something into space with SpaceX and then there was us we put the big geodesic sphere the this big blowing satellite into space so it was kind of the first satellite you could see from space there were all of these really amazing things the seventh country in the world to put something into space was was Rocket Lab and we did it with a team of 100 and something people from New Zealand that certainly raises the bar in terms of understanding what's possible and realizing we can absolutely compete with the Silicon Valleys of the world. Mm. And with that, and sort of circling back to all goods, now that you realize that it wasn't reaching your expectations or, well, yeah, I guess it wasn't meeting your expectations. So then what's next and how did that lead to your insight at Partly? Yeah. So I think all goods was a lesson in, you know, business 101, business mm. strategy, MBA 101. By the time I left Rocket Lab, I was quite strong on the engineering side, I guess. Very, very strong technically. But uh, all goods was just this huge series of mistakes. It's not understanding what competition actually means, like why you should avoid competition, what a network effect is, why you know scaling supply and demand on a, on a marketplace is so hard. 
why being the second largest marketplace is not valuable at all, how margins work, why are taking a, a small chunk of a of a big margin makes a lot more sense, et cetera. And so partly was kind of born out of all of those learnings. So we've gone through that whole all goods experience. We've found all the problems. There were around 150 companies on the all goods platform that sold car parts. Hmm. And the more we work with them, the more we realized the the problem that they had was really fundamental. And they were trying to list parts so that a buyer could pick a vehicle and see only the parts that were for, for their vehicle. Without that, buyers couldn't really find parts. Buyer lands on the on the platform, they type in headlight, they see 10,000 headlights. Yeah. There's only five, five that are going to fit their car. And so without that ability to link parts and vehicles, nothing was working. And so these customers would come to us and say, can you help us build something around this? And we thought about it and we kind of started to try. And the deeper we dug, the more we realized this was a, this was a really fundamental, meaningful problem. As we dug a little bit deeper, we realized there's nearly 2 trillion USD spent every year on these parts. Actually, this is not a local New Zealand problem. This is a global problem. As it turned out, it seemed to be a problem that was mostly unsolved for technical reasons as opposed to business reasons. When we applied all the things we'd learned at All Goods around the business in terms of, is this a defensible business with a large long-term moat? The answer was definitely yes. If you can actually solve that problem, making it really easy for buyers to find the right parts, you kind of create this incredibly valuable network. You create this this very valuable, what they call like a protocol network effect, access to data. We're in this massive market. We can solve it globally. And we kind of realize if we solve that problem, making it really easy for buyers to find the right parts, we can actually be one of the largest companies in the world, right? It's pretty statistically unlikely to happen, right? From an execution standpoint, a team standpoint, you know, there's all of these barriers in the way, but it's a pretty clear mission. It's a pretty clear thing that we have to do. And it's worth nearly 2 trillion, right? We can take a pretty big chunk of revenue off the back of that. It also became a lot what's, better. What's 2 trillion? Uh, so there's 1.9 trillion USD spent every year on car parts. Wow. Yeah, just just car parts, car parts alone. It's a, it's about one point something percent of the world's GDP is just spent on let's say. Um, wow. A car will be the second largest asset most people own. House and then car. Mm. Most people own cars, right? And so it, it's this unsexy, more traditional industry that's giant and you know, it's not obvious how big it is. So yeah, so that was that was kind of the thinking. We were also very familiar with marketplace dynamics at that point. We'd spent a couple of years figuring out how to solve supply-demand problems. This is a real supply-side problem because you need hundreds of millions of parts to solve for all the different vehicles. And so that made it really interesting. And uh, it was very, very global in nature. So all those things came together, gave us the confidence to shut down the previous business. As I say, it wasn't failing. It was just not wildly successful, but we were convicted enough partly to pull the trigger. So yeah, we did. We, we shut down all goods. We didn't even sell it actually because there was going to be buyout periods and a lot of work for us, a lot of distraction for us. So we just shut it down almost immediately and then started building partly. And that was just under three years ago. Mm. And often in marketplaces, there's there's that groundswell of existing behavior. How is business BAU for buying car parts? So just like a set of existing relationships, just describe that the status quo before partly. So status quo before partly, and I mean, it's still is mostly like this today. Each mechanic or insurer or, or large parts buyer will have a fixed set of suppliers that they know. When they need parts, they get on the phone and they call around. They might call one for common parts. They might call 15 for less common parts. So they just kind of call around all their different suppliers and they tell them, 
hey, I need a new starter motor for this 2015 Toyota Corolla with this chassis number. And then each supplier will go, oh yeah, I think we've got one of those out back. On the supplier end, they have people that are called class interpreters who've usually spent 10 to 20 years kind of memorizing parts. Mm. Some of them can can know up to 20,000 part numbers wow. memorized. <laughs> um, crazy people, actually. <laughs> And they kind of just build, you know, have these mental models. Some of them move on to these different databases. They build in-house or these or spreadsheets. Big manufacturers like Bosch kind of have come together to build out slightly bigger databases. But it's still, yeah, 90, I think it's 96% of the time of transactions done on the phone. And let's zoom out a bit. How do you think the marketplace that is partly should be built? And perhaps overlay that with your job as the CEO and I guess the tension you've found communicating that to investors or whoever else that may be. Well, it's a it's a it's a very complex business model and a very nuanced problem. And so, the the biggest challenge for me communicating this has been the phasing. Mm. This is not a simple. We go out, we solve a technical problem, we build supply, we scale demand, we balance those two things in some nice local geography, figure out how it scales in, in one city, and then and then. Build it, build it out there, right? That's a, <laughs> you know, it's 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 a lot more complicated than that, right? And so explaining those different phases has been hard. Where we said we first need to build out this core protocol. That's a technical problem. Obviously, it will scale over time, but there's a foundational thing we have to do. That's fine. Everyone understands that. The second thing we've got to do is work with the big marketplaces because you've got a thousand times more supply required than demand. So you kind of need to have this massive supply side before you even start bringing on demand. That's the thing that no one else has solved. And so we then say, we've got to work with all of these marketplaces to help them structure and standardize their data. Um, that's helping the consumer-facing side. We then need to work with all of these sellers, the sellers on the marketplaces, help them structure and standardize data, help them get everything ready, linking parts to vehicles, making it really easy for their buyers to find the right parts. It's only at that point that we go off and start to, to work with in, insurers or big demand aggregators. In other words, big buyers of parts. And that's been particularly difficult to explain because each phase has different people requirements, different measures of success, different revenue scale profiles. There's all of these different things. You know, that that phase one was pretty much pre-revenue. We were able to sell some things just enough to kind of get the next round of funding. Mm. That phase two, bringing on marketplaces, was good. We were able to generate good revenue off the back of it, actually quite surprisingly strong revenue growth off the back of it. All the metrics shifted, right? It was all about the marketplace. It's all hard enterprise sales. How do we do this really complex enterprise sales right up at a, at an eBay level, at a UN level? And so just, just to clarify on this uh, marketplace piece, you are using their data and organizing it so that the demand side can actually interpret that data effectively for what they need it for. That's correct. You've got 150 million parts, about 20 million vehicle configurations that we're dealing with, and you've got to create these relationships between parts and vehicles. Mm-hmm. No one's really done that at global scale before. No one's ever done it at global scale before at all, and no one's really done it at the accuracy level that's needed. Mm. So yeah, that's the that's the real fundamental problem we're solving. And to do that, we go in and we work with the eBayers of the world, the you know the big marketplaces of the world help them create those links so that when a buyer lands on eBay, they put in their vehicle and they only see the parts that fit. But we've had to work with all the sellers to do that. Mm. 
And what were you saying to eBay as part of the value proposition? Like it's early days and you've got to convince these big enterprises to work with you. How did you think about that problem? Yeah. So we'd say it's all about the customer or in eBay's case, we can say, here is your buyer experience today. Buyers landing, they're putting in their, you know, they're saying, I want a starter motor for my for a Corolla or a headlight. They're seeing 20,000 headlights. You want them to see 10. It's a terrible buyer experience. We can show you that today these customers are landing. They can't use this. And so they're going off to competitor retailers that have better data or they're calling on the phone or they're talking to specialists because eBay is unusable there. And they're probably only using you for, for price checks. And so we can increase your conversion rate enormously. Mm. Now, right at the start, we had to say, we'll increase your conversion rate. Like we promise, but without really much backing. As we started working with eBay Australia, we were able to increase their conversion rate by about 40%. And for a marketplace of that size, that's unheard of, 40% mm. conversion rate up with uh, eBay Australia do maybe about a billion dollars a year in parts and accessories sales. It's a, it's a plausible business. And so once we had that early data point, then it became a lot easier going into the other marketplaces. Here is your buyer experience today, you know, looking for a part, can't find a part for their vehicle. We'll work with your sellers to help them structure and standardize their data, linking parts to vehicles. We will push this information back off to the marketplace, your marketplace, and you will see a large conversion rate increase, much better buyer experience, better retention, better understanding of the customer, ability to market to individual customer based on their vehicle, etc. Mm-hmm. So that's phase two. Phase three, uh, I'd, yeah, I'd love you to go deeper there. So phase two is, is kind of working on behalf of the marketplace directly. They give you data, you help structure it. It's very enterprise-esque, not really, not a very nice business from a revenue quality perspective, right? You don't want a service, lower margin service business. You want a nice high margin SaaS-esque licensing subscription style business. So that was the, uh, that was the second bit there was we work with the sellers directly to help go one layer deeper on the quality of their data. And then we help each seller structure and standardize their own data. So we have those individual relationships. Now, in terms of why that's important, we can start taking all these marketplace sellers, we can help them create their own value, help them understand where gaps are, which parts do they not sell, which vehicles are popular and they don't have parts for. You can start doing these things that are very specific to vehicles that no one else can do because you understand the structure. The marketplaces are kind of helping fund and structure that. And then we can kind of grow value off the back of those individual sellers. So that's kind of your, your phase three you get access to stock levels, to prices, to kind of all the things you need to to build a supply side. Mm-hmm. And phase four? The phase four is just getting the big B2B demand aggregators in. So we never want to compete with our with our customers. eBay will continue to do eBay's thing and we don't we never want to compete with them. So we're not going to be selling this direct to consumer, which is what eBay do. But once you reach that sort of phase three, you've got this really unique view of the supply side. You know, you've got access to more supply than most other places in the world. And so you're able to take the insurance companies, the big fleets who spend a couple of hundred billion a year on parts and give them access to the supply side. And so instead of getting on the phone and calling all their different suppliers parts, they can just put their license plate in, say, here is the job I'm doing, or here is the damage on the vehicle. And we can say, here are the used parts the genuine parts from Ford, et cetera, the aftermarket parts, maybe made by a third party like Bosch. Here are the different prices. Here are the different locations. Well, there's 100,000 sellers on eBay and Amazon combined. So, you know, you've got a pretty big supply side. 
uh, and that on average, that lets these big demand aggregators a massively reduce the time. They don't have to get on a phone, uh, drop their costs by a lot because there's suddenly far more price transparency. It starts letting us do things like demand forecasting. So we can say, well, we can see these are the patterns you need to have stock here, as opposed to right now where suppliers just add what they think people might want. And you know, the net outcome in goal there is just this massive efficiency gain, efficiency and cost gain for these first insurers, then probably fleets, and then probably eventually out to all the, the workshops and mechanics. Hmm. And so zooming out again, one of the biggest things about marketplaces is, is about building trust between the supply and demand side and, and balancing that equation. It sounds like you've taken a few back doors in that building trust exercise. Can you share what else you've learned about how you've built trust between both sides? Yeah. So, I mean, yes, building trust is, is a combination of things. I mean, it's partially actually doing a good job, having a good product. It's partially understanding their business really well and proving that. The way that plays out in reality is you spend a lot of time understanding their business. You're very diligent in terms of creating content decks, etc., to prove to them you understand their business. We also hired people from within the business. So we brought on a, a couple of different people early. Tony was involved in the business super early on, co-founder CSO. He'd run the uh, eBay Motors business in Europe, moved to Amazon. He kind of built and ran the, the Amazon parts and accessories business in Europe and then, uh, then moved back to Australia. So bringing on key people within the business allowed us to really bootstrap a lot of that, a lot of that as well. Mm. And given the backdrop of having a tough time communicating these phases to investors, how did you drive conviction in this plan to yourself and the team that A, you were on the right path and B, that you were focusing on the right metrics and perhaps share what those metrics were that helped you drive conviction in each of those phases? Yeah, so internally, convincing the team has been relatively easy, I think, because they can see all the mechanics play out. We have that one overarching goal, make it really easy for buyers to find the right parts. And we can always tie it back to that. So each team has their own goals, maybe the seller experience team, their goal is to make it really easy for category managers to manage selection. Right? The buyer platform team, is their, their goal is actually making it really easy for buyers to find the right part. And so being able to always layer that up, I think has actually made it relatively clear. And once you're down in the detail, it's, it, it's that that's an easy sell. In terms of measuring it, the, the, the most difficult thing was understanding the phase we're actually in. Very early, things we measured were the links between parts and vehicles. How many links did we have? The links between parts and other parts. We call them cross-references. How many of those did we have? We would measure a, a kind of tangential view on, on accuracy. Um, that was return rates. How many of these parts were being returned? And that was, that was very important early when we were building out the protocol. A lot of it was anecdotal. A lot of it was just early days, I personally spoke to 300 odd customers, right? Constantly. Um, and that was all about building a mental model. So less, slightly less measurable, far more learning orientated. Mm. But yeah, I guess those three metrics were the key things that we were tracking. Moving past that into the, into the marketplace phase, the metrics were all around uh, gross merchandise value, GMV sales volume, right? How much volume is being transacted through listings that we power on a marketplace. So we landed eBay. Okay, how much GMV, gross production value, is going through our products? And we were able to, you know, so eBay Australia, we grew that from 2 million annualized GMV to 90 million annualized uh, USD across that nine-month period. So we were able to like, wow. really ramp that aggressively. Yeah. That was the thing that we were focused on growing. 
as we started moving into that phase three onboarding sellers, it became far more about retention. What what does our cohorts look like? How are we retaining each one of these sellers? Upsell value, like net revenue retention. How how strong is our ability to upsell these sellers? What percentage of these sellers are we upselling into other parts? Uh, What does that data now look like, right? Daily active user, monthly active user. And because you kind of have kind of captured the marketplaces at that point, and you're now focusing on on scaling and leveraging that massive supply base. That's actually the point that we're at now, right? We're kind of at that phase three, phase four. You know, we're we're dabbling, we're working on that that learning phase for mm. the phase four. Where we're talking to a lot of customers, we're we're understanding the problem. We you know, we have a couple of contracts that we've signed now with these big demand side aggregators, and we're starting to build build that out. And so the numbers there will likely be direct transactions mm. and then overall time saving and cost, but you know, pretty open-ended at the moment. And with retention, data mail, these engagement metrics, does that mean at the moment the entire team is how do we, uh, like, it's all about the imagination to keep buyers on the platform for as long as possible and that you're instrumental to the way in which they search for and, and buy parts. That's exactly right. That's what the team are focused on now. How do we drive that retention? How do we build out our prioritization model so we understand which ones are valuable and which ones are not? How do we you know, do our lead gen and, and have an account management structure for the most valuable ones? Mm. How do we self-serve and build out this slightly more scalable product for the ones we can't work with directly? Uh, you know, What are the different tools or features or key things that they need to, to see the value early? You know, what, is their, what is their aha moment as they say on kind of SaaS land, right? These are all the yep. things that you that team out there here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. And switching gears a little bit, before the call, uh, we were laughing about your love for first principles. And in a prior conversation that we've had, uh, I know you've spoken about your distaste for process and how partly is very much run on on frameworks. You share maybe a couple of examples of frameworks that the product team finds itself leaning on a lot. Yeah, so th- that's an important distinction. Like process is not bad. It's just overused a lot and prefer to think of things as, as a framework because a process implies a step-by-step thing that you do and you follow mindlessly. Mm. Framework just gives you a way of thinking about things and that's that's the important distinction there. You know, I think, to be honest, I've already described a lot of the frameworks that teams use. So a lot of the, the you know, the way we're talking about these phases, that's all part of the, the framework. Mm. We were to look at our hiring process, right? That's the sort of thing you do need some structure behind because you need to be doing the same thing, asking the same questions each time. So you've got predictability and scalability. And so we have our hiring framework, which says you do some kind of deep technical test where you're testing for these three key principles. Do they care a lot? Are they curious? Can they reason from first principles? And then it's not really much more prescriptive than that, but we still do that. And so you have a couple of people, engineering team, that will go through a full technical two-hour interview, pulling that out. We then have our interview loop, right? That's part of the framework. We have we interview against all of our core values. They'll speak to four people. And then we have a bar raiser. And the bar raiser is constantly trying to raise the bar. As the, you know, the human there that's saying, we need better, we need higher quality, we need better people. And so that's kind of framework. Within that, People can skip steps, do things in a different way, you know, a lot of autonomy, but we're just saying, these are the baseline things you need. These are the key, very specific things we care about. You know, your your first principles, I guess you'd call them. Now, how do you operate within that framework? 
Love that. And you've doubled the team at least to 60 people at the moment. I know that it has been technically really tough to build this product. And so you've attracted a group of people who are clearly sharing a lot of the same values that you treasure. But what are some of the things that you've learned while you scale to 60 people? Usually this is the, again, communication sort of breakdown. You find yourself in a, a new area of systems and cultures. And I'd love to get your insight on maybe a lesson or two on uh, over the past year. One of the most important things is don't hire yourself. Um, as the company scales, you need more specialists. You need people that come with a lot of experience. Just relying on really smart people who can reason with first principles is not, that doesn't actually create a great company. You do need both. I've actually probably learned that process framework distinction. Uh, a year ago, I probably would have said no process at all. Yeah. That's a recipe for disaster or chaos. <laughs> You know, just reason everything through from first principles. You can't actually do that. I guess I've learned that there's no point trying to reinvent all management theory. Like there's a reason these things work. As a startup, we're not likely to fundamentally disrupt the way that people operate, right? People are people. So I think that's another one of the big learnings. Communication frameworks become critical. I think everything breaks approximately every time you double, 8, 16, 32, 64. These are kind of like your break points. Definitely learn to be willing to move people in and out as necessary. So let go of good people because the phase, the company is not aligned anymore. It's a painful, painful lesson to learn. Uh, something kind of painful you're going to have to do. Um, reinforce the value in talent. Never, ever, ever compromise on talent density. What that means is it takes a long time to hire, right? Mm -hmm. Everyone says this. Everyone says don't compromise on talent. You have to learn that lesson a lot of times to really understand what it means. It means... You spend a lot of time building relationships and you spend a lot of time hiring. It takes way longer than than you would hope because you, you just can't compromise there. Yeah, probably, probably a lot more, but those are probably the, some of the high level. As a thought experiment, if it takes you three months to hire someone in this don't compromise talent density versus you hire and set expectations clearly and if the bar isn't met, then part ways neutrally and you have to hire three people in that in that time period. Have you tested that model of buy quickly, be clear, and maybe the fit isn't just right? Um, it, unintentionally, I think we've tested that model and it still doesn't really work. I think you're still better to slow down the entire company, you know, just deal with some chaos to, to find, find the right person because you bring someone in, you know, they've got to scale up their mental model. You spend a lot of time onboarding them. You know, that culture is critical. And so you, you put a lot of work into that. And you, you're doing that with the long term in mind. You want to be with the company for a long time because they're amazing. That's the implicit assumption. If that doesn't play out, then you end up with all this misalignment. It just doesn't work. Mm. Over the next year, what do you expect Hartley's biggest learning will be? That's a good question. I think our biggest learning will be how to build repeatability, scalability, i.e. how do we how do we build more operational rigor around things? We're quite yeah. good at innovating at reasoning from first principles. These are things that founders are often good at. We're still quite weak at building out the baseline structures needed to scale this up massively, the communication. So I suspect that's going to be our biggest learnings. Let me productionize all of this. Mm. And finally, just describe the generational version of Partly. I'll have you back on in 2033. What does the business look like? Oh, I mean, well, I'll, I'll have to be super aspirational here. I would like to say that Partly is the largest B2B network for parts in the world transacting across most of the major parts, buyers and sellers. Love it. 
man thank you so much for your time that was honestly epic oh and uh, yeah appreciate your time as well thank you so much for tuning into this episode if you left with more energy than when you started we'd be super grateful if you liked subscribed left a review even shared it with a friend in case you want to keep in touch share feedback or even a pitch deck i'll leave my blink card in the show notes for you to get in touch thank you so much for listening once again and we'll see you in a couple of weeks godspeed